Welcome to Who Owns the Stars, a weekly podcast where we cover every episode of The Expanse and go through all of our crazy theories, inane reactions, and just general excitement about this show. I am one of your hosts, Nina, and this is Kat. Hi, I am Kat, and I am very excited to talk about Season 1, Episode 8, Salvage. Me too. This is actually a... This is an interesting episode. So Salvage was directed by Bill Johnson, just like he directed the previous episode, episode seven, um, which is titled Windmills. This was written by returning writer Robin Beats. She wrote um, episode three, Remember the Camps. So Robin was responsible for Mother Elise had the widest hips. (laughs) Yes. I think she's the only female writer in this season. I mean, it's funny because last episode you were talking about like this stretch of the season shows you like how overwhelmingly male the cast is. It is a very, well, it was actually this episode that made me think it. But like Mm -hmm. while we were talking about the last episode, I was like, I just got to bring this up now. Mm -hmm. And I like, to be fair, like I, I don't necessarily hold this against the show because the book is pretty, like the first book. Yeah. It's definitely written for a male audience, I would say. Um, and so, I don't disagree. Like, I'm not going to let you stand out. I'm like, I will, I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> I'm not going to let you stand out on your own with that one. Like. I, and I, I say this all, like, neutrally. Like, mm-hmm. because it is an observation we're going to have to make as two young women who are not really the intended demographic for the show. And I would argue not the same demographic as what populates this show currently. Yeah. So, all that to say, there are a lot of men in this episode. God damn it. Yeah. It's funny, because this week I was even recommending the books to another woman. And you know how when you're giving your recommendations to people, you give all your caveats. And it's like, yes, there's this, this, and that. But I say all that to get the negative stuff out of the way. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I had to tell her I'm going to be honest with you. You're not even, you're not going to get like a woman's point of view for more than a page or two until the second book. It's not that it's still worth a read, but you know, just going in, know that it's very much, you can tell this was written by men. <laughs> like we have, we are reading the books. We started an entire podcast because we like the show so much. Yeah. So it's not that we have a lot of love. Ever. We have a lot of love for this story, and at the same time, we recognize that we might not be the people the story is being written for. At least at the beginning, I would argue. Um, I think that definitely changes later. I think next season immediately that changes. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely season three, but <laughs> in the beginning, it's a little uh, limited. Yeah. But, you know, now we'll get into the episode. So if you were rolling your eyes, you can stop now. (laughs) Um, To recap quickly, uh, the crew realizes that they're wrapped up in some weird fucked up blue shit. Um, Aaron Wright's black ops team tries and fails to kill everybody. Miller's investigation on Eros leads into the same hotel where the Rossi crew ends up looking for Lionel Polanski. And Avasarala continues to try and figure out what's going on while kind of trying to advocate for Holden because she believes he's the key to everything. Where do we want to start? 
Um, you would think at this point maybe we just say let's do Earth, then crew, then no, home. we want to like, we want to keep it spicy. I will say yeah. I'm I'm gonna correct uh, something I said in the previous episode. I was complaining about the way this show is being lit in the first season, and that's not what I'm apologizing for. I agree with that. However, <laughs> I was referring. I to said what I said, <laughs> and I stand by it. Um, but I was referring to a scene between Avasarala and Admiral Souther, and I didn't realize I was referring to... Because we... Okay, so, for context, we record these episodes two at a time, so I mm-hmm. forgot that the scene I'm referring to is in this episode. But these two episodes in general, I kind of just collapse together. But that doesn't really give you an indication of where we should start. So, up to you. Then, you know, let's... Stop by Earth, because I don't know about you, but I don't have, like, a ton to say about it, so we can get it out of the way. Yeah, I agree. While Souther, Abasarala, and Aaron Wright are talking, they mention that Tycho is an Earth corporation that employs a ton of builders. I guess one of my primary questions <laughs> is, what their political status is because Tycho Station is so tied to the OPA. So is it just that, like, yes, this is their headquarters in the belt and they operate mostly autonomously? Um, is it because Fred Johnson is in charge that they're like, okay, he's not going to, you know, get too out of pocket? That's really my concern. Or do they just not care because, you know, they're making money? It's hard because it, it's hard to understand, like, what exactly is the belt compared to, like, like, you can call Earth a planet. It's a nation. It mm-hmm. has a government. You can call Mars the same thing. But when it comes to the belt, like, you know that, like, uh, Ceres Station has a governor, for example. So maybe Tycho has a governor. And Fred Johnson, yeah, you're right. Fred Johnson's just, like, running a giant engineering, like, I don't know, service outside mm-hmm. out of Tycho. And you get the sense that he runs Tycho, but it's, this is like, I think the reason it's hard to answer your question is because I don't really know what I would consider each of these stations. I guess by mm-hmm. calling them stations, they're really just like outposts, you know, right. like, like, and people who live there, it's almost like they live in like corporate towns. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where they live, where they work. And the people who are living here have started to develop cultures and are now trying to, you know, create a real home. I don't know. But I guess... I mean, you kind of run into the same questions that you generally do with, like, the belt's identity, where, like, this is this is a labor class above all else. Mm-hmm. When you get into trying to define it in other ways, it's difficult because that encompasses so many different kinds of people. But I think, like, that's something that's consciously part of the show. Like, people understand this about the belt. Like, that's what we're meant to understand about them. My next point, and my last point, (laughs) is when Souther says that they're not going to find stealth ships if they read Tycho, Aaron Wright just kind of tosses off, well, we'll find something. Damn. You know what that means. (laughs) Exactly. But even aside from that, it's not about the stealth ships themselves. It really comes down to showing Tycho who's in charge. Yeah. And you're going to do that, you know, probably the same way back in, was it episode six, where those Martian cops were, or military, were able to find something wrong, like a reason to penalize Diego's uncle. Yeah. It is somewhat unrelated, but I really appreciate, um, 
Aaron Wright's portrayal mm-hmm. in this season. He doesn't really become a player until the next season, which is to say that he survives this season, if that was ever up for debate. He kind of, the actor really, like, kind of, he, he doesn't play him as, like, this cruel, quote-unquote, out-of-control political leader. He Like, because when he talks about Tycho and he's like, oh, we'll find something, he doesn't say it in a way where, like, we emphasize on the facts that he's implying that they would illegally you know, pin something on Craig Johnson. He says it in a way where it's just it's just another day of, like, mm-hmm. governing the system. And we've seen previous episodes where he talks to Avasarala, almost trying to limit her power and talking about how you can't, you know, you can't just, um, uh, I, water, no, waterboard is not what the, you right. can't just torture belters, basically. And I, I like the actor's portrayal where these are really things of little consequence mm-hmm. to him. But yeah. to us, they're like, you know, these are big things that you're saying. And I, I like that he says it with such mm. little fan. Above all, you can see he sees himself as a pragmatist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Earth must come first is really you like... And this is something I've like kind of... <laughs> you taught me. Um, you never want to believe that somebody's a bad person. But what ends up happening is not that they're doing a bad thing, although they are. It's that they have different values mm-hmm. than you and so to them it doesn't see it doesn't come off as a bad thing so for him it is natural for aaron wright and avasarala to mm-hmm. value earth and if belters suffer as a result of that that doesn't matter to them because they don't value arguably they don't ba- value belter lives and like it's it's almost strange to see that be heard right. so plainly which i don't think it's exactly happening here but like you can argue probably has happened before where like if they'll have a conversation it's probably not very um, surprising if they say something or lean toward a policy that kind of sacrifices uh, belters right. at the end of the day. So it's just it's it's this kind of little dialogue like that where he's like, you know, we'll fig- mm-hmm. we'll do something. Like if nothing else, something will happen out of this. And it's not some big like we need to pin Fred Johnson. It's just like, look, this is how it's gonna work. Like you know this, I know this, and that's it. But uh. I, I don't know if I'm projecting because I don't remember if he reacted this way, but I, I feel that Admiral Souther feels different. Admiral Souther seems to be someone who is realizing that his personal methods and morals don't align with the job that he is in. And he's not really sure how to navigate that. Um, there was something I had had originally intended on leaving for quotes, but I think it's relevant to the conversation we're already having, where um, he talks about how Holden is going to die on Eros, even though Avasaral is trying to put a stop to it. And he says, you know, he's going to die on Eros, and it's, I don't remember his exact quote, but he's like, it's not going to matter because Eros is the murder capital of the belt. And murder capital is like Uh. the specific words that he uses. And like, that very much makes me think of the language that people use today to talk about cities like, you know, Baltimore and Chicago full of poor people, poor black people. You know, yeah. you're creating the circumstances yeah. for someone's death and then you can pass it off as just being ha- happening in a murder capital. So then they can get lost in the statistics that you're then going to trot out to demonize these same people. Yeah. The way people describe Eros in this episode at all is fascinating because everybody's like, Eros is this garbage heap. 
You know, it doesn't matter. It's on the outskirts of the system. I, I don't even know, like, what people do at Arrows. Maybe, like, together. They, um, you can dock there. You can gamble. It was actually, Arrows was built before series. And mm. once series came along, like, all the whole economy then moved to series. So what's left to do on Arrows is go to the casinos, go to the brothels. Yeah. Oh, it's the brothels. Yeah. <laughs> We haven't had to talk about gender politics in a minute because there are so many men you can't really talk about. But people do, like, people do come back to Eros to, like, fix their ships and you can dock there for a good amount of time without somebody hassling you. It's it's sad. I I feel like there's a lot we could say about Eros and how it's framed and how it's intentionally talked about. You know, you made the comparison already, but it's, like, how people talk about certain cities in this country so it's interesting to see Eros kind of, it feels more like a one-to-one parallel than certain mm-hmm. things in this season. Like I, when, when they talk about Eros, I'm like, oh, I right. see what's happening here. Like Eros is a place that has been basically stripped of its resources and the people that are left um, don't have mm-hmm. many options. And so, you know, talking about gambling and brothels is, again, this is something we talked about in the pilot. It's a way, to, it's a shorthand to indicate, um, Seediness. Yeah, disadvantaged seediness. People. Disadvantaged people and, and to tie poverty to crime mm-hmm. in a negative way. So, you know, it's just, it's it's interesting when, when you can immediately make those kinds of connections. That is really all I have for Earth. Um, we do, of course, find out that Frank DeGraff committed suicide. Yeah, rip Frank. That's yeah. so sad. You know, technically the show committed a, a bury your gaze sin, if you think about it. Oh, well, I did not think about it. <laughs> when you watch enough genre television and like, mm-hmm. you, like you know, like you see the conversation, you start picking up on like, like when I watch this, I was like, ooh, that would actually like not go down so hot, I think, if the demographic mm-hmm. was younger. Um, I, I mean, it's sad nonetheless. And I think, I don't know. I forget like how much... LGBTQ um, representation I mean, is on the show. It's I mean, there. I know there's one. It's more so in the background. And I think if somebody wanted to argue on behalf of the show, they would say it's because, you know, romance and romantic relationships are not a big part of it. Alternatively, though, we use relationships to give us an idea of how people relate to each other in a and even though we don't get a lot of romantic relationships, like, they are present. On the other hand, I think you could then make an argument, and since the show is still running, I would, I, I hope this is something that might happen, I think you could absolutely make an argument for mm-hmm. trans characters, because that's not necessarily connected to romance. You don't need to be in a romantic relationship to showcase that exactly. kind of representation. There is, I, I feel like at this point, there's an entire field of study when it comes to um, trans characters and science fiction, there's like a million different ways to talk about, in the same way that like, you know, Afrofuturism is an entire field of study. I feel like you could say the same thing about trans people and how they sort of see themselves mm-hmm. in the future and the way science fiction tells stories that are like almost. almost, yeah, yeah, they're allegories to being trans but are never exactly about being trans i'm just like mm-hmm. going on a, this is totally unrelated but 
if the show was thinking of moving in certain directions, I always think that yeah, you could do that. Absolutely. Anyway, that's not the point. <laughs> no, no, but, you know, it's still worth, point you know, is that it's, fun, it's fun discussion. Frank DeGraph dies by suicide. It's very, very sad. It. I actually was like, that hurt. And this show, luckily this show does not, like, murder a bunch of people and make death meaningless, which I think certain shows do. I mean, we have the whole, we have, like... The existence of, you know, a red shirt for a reason. Star Trek killing off the um, red shirts, which are just like the lower, you sometimes nameless people who don't contribute much to the story, but they get killed off to, you know, show a threat. Those are the people who, you know, die, but they don't really matter. I had no idea that's what red shirt meant. I appreciate that the show tends to be meaningful about their death. It's not a very nihilistic show, which I personally appreciate because I'm I'm really tired of shows that are just like humanity is terrible and like we can't break this blah blah blah. Yeah, the expense is very much like you are making a choice to either be good or not be good, and whatever choice yeah. you make, it's gonna have some kind of consequence. All that to say, what I my original point was that. I remember something that Frank DeGraff said to Avasarala in episode three. Remember the cant? What, the, the garden talk? He talks about how um, when she was younger, the mm-hmm. game she used to play, and the conclusion that he drew was that you will do anything to win, even if it kills you. Or No, no. You will do anything to win, and that's mm-hmm. what killed your father. And when that line originally came, I feel like if I had been watching that for the first time, I would have been like, oh, she right. is going to die. Like, that is a foreshadowing. But then it's Frank who does. And I and, and it's spoiler, but she survives the season. I think it's interesting how Avasarala will do anything to win. And it's actually not her who dies. Ironically, it's the people around her who die. Like, she talked about in the previous episode, episode um, seven, uh, windmills, that uh, right. her son died Uh because she and she feels that it's her fault in some way because she pushed him to join the Earth, the mm-hmm. Marines for Earth. And now Frank DeGraff is dead. And I think this is going to be a pattern where the people Avasarala uses Ooh. die, but she does not. And that's sort of her her penance, I guess, that she is going to have to witness this. And is Avasarala uh, a guy with a I'm tongue? like <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um And I'm like fully projecting at this point, but if there is something to break out of, if there is something to redeem herself from, this is sort of a lens to look at it. Um, And I'm thinking of like another character later on who died, like, you know, it Mm -hmm. just keeps happening. Um, Do we want to go ahead to the crew? Let us do it. So let's jump right in. When Holden assigns Amos to guard the spy... He knows good and well that Amos is, you know, going to do whatever to keep this guy in line. (laughs) However, I think that it honestly confirms a little bit of what Amos was saying to Holden last episode. You know, you don't want to get your hands dirty because it would be an empty threat if Holden said, I'm going to kill you if you step out of line. Putting him with Amos, like he knows that Amos will kill this guy if he has to. And this guy knows it as well. It's funny because it reminds me of um, in episode two, which is titled, uh, 
Mm-hmm. What is that about two titled? Uh, yes, no. Oh, the big empty, the big empty, the big empty. Um, and they are like fixing the ship. Yes. There's, I don't know if you remember, but there's that line. That, yeah, Amos says to Holden, he's like, you know, I. <laughs> it's really creepy, but he's saying the only reason I wouldn't throw you out into space right now is because Naomi exactly. wouldn't want me to. And it's interesting how Holden actually takes advantage of that exactly. for himself. He knows that Amos is not going to kill Kenzo unless Holden explicitly tells him to. And so he like relies on that training that Amos mm-hmm. has basically had, which is, is fascinating. Like, and Amos's frustration is coming from, you know, you're a guy with a cause, but you're not really about that action. But you also, <laughs> you know, yeah. you need a sin eater. So you can benefit from what I do, but you're still going to complain about who I am as a person, even though that enables the things that you need to happen, which is a valid, you know, point to have. I think, um, well, uh, to be fair, like, I think there's a line in this episode where Holden says, like, you know, mm-hmm. if you touch him, like, you're out. To be, to fair. be fair. So, because I, I, I would say, like, I don't think, like, Alex is going to, like, well, Alex doesn't even go into the ship. Um, I like I'm cut I want to cut Holden some slack <laughs> for now. As much as Holden knows who Amos mm-hmm. is capable of, I feel like Holden is also like don't like don't right. pull that shit. But we will see later that he does right. exactly what you're saying. He kind of uses Amos because he knows what Amos is capable of. And that's <laughs> in a different season. We will get there. Well, it's because we brought up this line, like, you're the guy, you're the guy with big ideas who wants to go up right. against the bad guys as long as you don't, like, right. have to pay the cost. And it reminds me of these kinds of archetypes of characters where they they are the leader, they are the the, the one who is believes in the, the deontological perspective of the ends do not justify the means if the means themselves are not justified. And it's always interesting to see how other characters mm-hmm. poke at that and try to understand that. Because I think the reason that those characters exist is because those characters are us. They're like the audience mm-hmm. in the show. We've said this before. I think Holden Rupert is, like, is a lot more how we would act than mm-hmm. other characters, as much as people want to pretend that they would be Amos in this show. Um, but Holden is believes in these quote-unquote archaic value ideas right. about justice but in general he's you know he's like why would right. i kill someone and that's something you can say in real life why would i kill someone and then you have these other characters who are like well you know there are many reasons so like it's just it's just interesting when in the universe the characters mm-hmm. push them because i just you know it's just it's just interesting that's no, all i, I love have to say. is there anything else that we would like to say like about that. I guess the only other thought I have, like while they're mm-hmm. on the scopuli, is um, like I, I talked about this in the in the previous episode, but they are the way they like the show the the episode is filmed where like it feels like they're reliving what happened to Julie. There's even a shot of like uh, blood on the wall, um, and we know in the pilot that that blood was mm-hmm. hers. I think. Uh, well, well, I lied. I we learn later mm-hmm. that that blood is hers um in, in in i think the next episode yeah in the next episode we're gonna learn that but you know it's interesting how the pilot how this episode and how the next episode will all kind of play a role in telling the story right. of what really happened so it was cool to see the team like to see the team like step through her life because it's, it's kind of the closest that anyone's got to julie even miller like never touched right. the scopuli so that uh the anubis um 
so just you know just really really interesting stuff the other thing is um when holden and naomi mm-hmm. are chatting i, I like don't remember scene. what they were They're, chatting about well they talk about you know a few things but one of the main things <laughs> one of the main things is about holden and Naomi talking to McDowell about his glass cats or his figurines. Uh, yeah. Um, he told I think he told her that they were like collectibles or something. And Holden says something yeah. like, Well, I wish I'd gotten that story. But I think I just I like that Holden just likes talking to people. Holden is in love with Naomi. He has a crush on her, but he likes being around mm-hmm. her, which is nice because the basis of any romantic relationship, and I wish some TV writers would take note of this, is that the characters have to like being around each other. And I think Holden mm-hmm. and Naomi do that. I think I like that they, you know, they just enjoy hanging out. And, you know, he's growing on her. Last thing I have to say about the ship stuff is I did some research, um, a.k.a. <laughs> I googled some stuff, and it turns out that the Anubis and the Scopuli are actually really relevant names for these ships because... The Scopuli uh, refers to islands in Greek myth that lured mm-hmm. sailors to their deaths. As we know, the Scopuli was used as bait to blow up the Canterbury. So I thought that was, I thought that was fitting. It's almost like when you like, it's almost like telling mm-hmm. you what's going to happen before. You know, happen. this is a situation where being well read might have saved some lives. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and the Anubis, so the reason I thought of this is because mm-hmm. of that line where Kenzo talks about what the Anubis, uh, mm-hmm. what Anubis means. And he's, he says it's the Egyptian god of the dead. Um, I looked it up. Apparently, it's also referred to as the patron god of lost Ooh. souls. And I was like, that Especially, sounds interesting. Because exactly. Dawes has been referred to as the patron saint of lost souls. So, and I don't really think there's a connection between Dawes and the Anubis as far as I remember. But, you know, it's... Well, remind me, was the the Scopuli, which is the ship that Julie was originally on? She was originally Scopuli. on the Scopuli. They intercepted okay. the Anubis. So never mind. So for, because, yeah, for me, I'm like, Scopuli makes sense because it was used as bait. But the Anubis, I think I'm going to stick to the God of the Dead, like, definition of it. I guess it's kind of like, you know, it's 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 mm. where people died. You know, like, it's it's where the the bioweapon um, kind of freaked out and a lot of people died for it. So they're in a graveyard, I think, mm-hmm. basically is what I'm saying. Because on the Scopulite, it was actually empty, mm-hmm. if I remember, versus um, on the Anubis, there were definitely, like, people dying mm-hmm. on that ship. Um, I do have a few more points, but they are small. So, you know, we can zoom through. Um, I do love Holden's reaction to the... Let's call it blue goo. <laughs> like he was really not trying to stick around. He hightailed it right on out of there. Yeah. And I love when they're like, you know, the music gets like intense and they're supposed to be like running back and they're floating <laughs> at like the speed of like an inch per minute and they're freaking out. I'm like, first of all, y'all are dead. Like, I don't know what other situation this would work in, but like you're literally. Like, if this was an animal, you would be dead. You are lucky this is some weird, dormant, like, biological sickness. My next point, we have spent a lot of time talking about belters and Martians, you know, yearning and hoping for a planet with dirt and water. 
There's a really small moment on Arrows where Naomi wanders over to a poster that has a picture of a beach on it, and she just kind of stares at it for a second, and then she walks away. And I wonder, like, does that qualify? Because it's really the only time we even see her show that sort of interest. Yeah. But I really did enjoy that moment. Oh, my God. I I didn't even clock that. Because that's in the middle of the very, Mm -hmm. like, tense, like, scene that plays out but yeah oh i'm gonna save that um but that's kind of what i have <laughs> for them this is gonna be a short episode um so this before miller comes basically um i just i i kind of want to yeah to point it out the tension in the blue falcon and just like the way it plays out is very stressful um and I, I like that the characters are almost making us jumpy before mm-hmm. we need to be. But what I really love is Amos in this scene because, first of all, Holden and his hat. I'm like, you <laughs> are going to get recognized. I don't understand. Yeah. So Holden and his hat. Holden and Naomi are, like, paying attention to the hotel guy. Alex is just, like, chilling out as he does. But Amos is, like, on the scene. I really like the way they play it because – you know, as much as Amos was, like, kind of causing trouble in the last episode and felt really betrayed in the previous episode before that, this episode, it, it was cool to see him in his element. It, w- it was cool to see him, like, basically protect his team um, because he was paying attention when none of them were um, because he's used to that. Like, that's the type of environment he's used to. And I really loved that. Just, like, the little moments of him, like, just paying attention to these random parts of the room i really loved that that was good you knew to an extent what was going to happen and it's just kind of that sick feeling waiting for it um and then miller comes miller the thing so the reason i where am i starting so first of all miller and holden it's a dick measuring (laughs) contest let's just get that out of the way um and it it is very cool like i remember the first time i watched Mm -hmm. the episode and Miller shows up, I was like, holy shit. Like, this is it. Finally, like, two stories are linking up. Like, it's all coming together. That was, I loved that. I thought that was so cool. Um, Obviously, on, like, the fifth watch, I'm like, oh, it's cool. Like, (laughs) I can, like, see Miller coming into frame. I'm like, okay, well. Lester's gone. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Because it's supposed to be a surprise, but if you've watched it enough, like, it's. Right. And, you know, once you know, okay. They're going to a thing, a rock near Eros, and he says that he's going directly to Eros. You're like, okay, yeah, yeah. we're finally going to link up. Yeah, so I guess it's not a matter of if they meet, but like when they meet, that is the surprise. So Miller comes. Um, Miller and Holden, like as much as like Holden has been like fighting with Amos or like everybody else, like Miller and Holden, it feels like yet mm-hmm. another fight. Um, but Amos is like, on his side this point i mean it's really comes back to like there's you know division within the team but once an outsider comes you know they still understand well we need to be a united front but as for miller i liked his conversation with the mormon early on um i like the detail that he's never been off series because like this is really a whole new world for him and everything about his life and identity has been so very tied to series that it makes sense to 
it makes sense that he's never been off of it, but it also makes sense that once he's lost everything else, he's just going to leave. It seems like people are really aware of the Nabu. And I just wonder, yeah, what is like the public opinion about the Nabu and the Mormons? Like, how do people feel, especially when, you know, you're struggling in space and you see these Mormons building this ship where they can live a life that mirrors what they had on Earth when that's something that, like, you really can only imagine. Yeah, and, like, you know, you could even think about it in terms of, like, what would have happened if people weren't diverting their resources exactly. to building the ship? And if they were if they were building the stations to be like that, or if they were doing their own missions and exploration. I, I think what I struggle with a lot in this season is, like, what role do the Mormons play? Like, they feel like such a random, like, diverging situation that I, I like, had a tough time. In this episode, I kind of got it. I was like, it's, it's a question of faith. Like, for Miller, it makes sense because you pair him with this guy who has this unshakable faith in this god that, like, can't be proven exists um, versus Miller, who doesn't believe in anything, including himself. And so, obviously, like, and he even says, he's like, I'm not that desperate. Um, so, and then later in the episode, uh, I think with Semi, who, by the way, is played by an actor who was on Orphan Black. Shout out to yes, Orphan Black. Um, he, uh, Semi says, you know, like, why are you so interested in this girl? Blah, 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 classic. And Miller says, because I believe in her. And I feel like the writing of that was very intentional to show that Miller does have faith. Um, he mm-hmm. has faith in Julie, in, 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 in finding her. Um, so, like, I, I see the relevance of the Mormons from that. But from other than that, I'm kind of like, what are I do think here? it's interesting to show, like, Honestly, and I can see somebody not being a fan of this, including my own mother. (laughs) But I think it's almost the same thing as corporations. Like, we see how corporations have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's similar to religion, because obviously religion isn't going to disappear entirely, but we can see this takes a lot of money. And... It's just people continuing to amass wealth and resources. Mm, And religion is not different from that. And it's not to say, ooh, religion is a business, even though it very much can be. (laughs) But I think it's showing, like, this is how these people or things or cultures work in this system. That's a good point. And Mormons, to begin with, even in our day, are rich as hell. So... (laughs) I can't speak to that, so I'll believe you. Um, I guess it's a good way of showing how religion has not uh, disappeared. It's and mm-hmm. it has barely changed. I would argue. Um, it's just that the goals have maybe changed. You know, like we don't see any churches really in the in the system, um, and I don't really know what a what a church in like series station would look like besides being just right. another metal building. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is like their manifestation. They're like, you know, if we can explore outside of Earth, where else can our faith take us? Exactly. And, you know, at this point, and it's not even to say, okay, people in the future aren't going to believe in, say, like heaven or an afterlife anymore. Mm-hmm. But at this point, they have the resources where 
and the technology where they can feel as though they can create their own paradise. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. You know, like literally, in the more literal sense, we have reached the heavens and we're still, you know, expanding, looking for more, but we feel like we've done what we need to do. We have everything we need or we have the capacity to create it ourselves. Totally. They're trying to recreate the world the way God did. Damn. For them. They're trying to play God. Mm-hmm. And it's also like you have the option almost to run away from, you know, this shit world that the rest of us are living in. Mm. But you're going to do that just by taking your people and nobody else to actually experience it. Yeah. And I've got a lot of thoughts about that attitude of like going away, like leaving the place you destroyed as opposed to fixing it. In general, when it comes to science fiction and space, there's a, I, I think there's still a space to talk, a space. I still think there's enough area to talk about um, why our first thought is to leave Earth um, if we have that kind of technology and why not instead use that technology to make where we live more livable. It's kind of like um, in, uh, in Interstellar, that's what they do, right? They the big line is like, we were never meant to save Earth, which is like currently coming apart due to climate change in that movie. We were meant to leave it. And it's meant to be this very inspiring thing. But I feel like over the years, I've become less excited about that mentality of like, mm-hmm. you know, new world, new world, same rules, basically. You, you think you bring civilization with you because you come from civilization. You know, all like... I don't think things change just because you colonize a new world, because you explore a new planet. I think you bring the same systems with you. And if you bring the same systems with you, then you're going to bring the same problems with you. And so for these Mormons, I'm like trying to tie it back to this, but for (laughs) these Mormons, you know, if their goal is to go out into the great unknown, do they think that certain problems are going to be fixed because they those problems won't be fixed because they're running away from them. But um, I don't think they're preoccupied with that. No, they're really just trying to create their own paradise and, you know, keep it pushing. Yeah. But I do, his conversation with the Mormon is a really good example of just how he sees causes or just anything that people collectively believe in. Mm -hmm. Um, He says something like, you might just be getting out at the right time. I think that he subscribes to the belief that religion or having this belief in something is really your escape from reality. Mm-hmm. You know, that's your way to cope with the shitstorm that's on the horizon, but it's get it's you're using that to get away from something. And I think that that is still in line with him saying that he believes in Julie because he's clinging to Julie because he has nothing else to make him happy. And, you know, he then asked the Mormon, what happens when, when, not if, but when you get there and there's nothing there, you don't find what you're looking for. And so it's a way to say it without saying it. You know, there's no happy endings to stories in his world. Damn. Why do you bother pursuing anything on faith when it's just going to end in disappointment? But, you know, that's the same trip he's on right now. So 
it's a very cynical way to talk about something that you're consciously doing. Yeah, it's very hypocritical, right? Like it's it's you like you are criticizing this guy for doing exactly what you're doing, which maybe is the point of that scene to show as much as this is Miller's perspective, maybe this scene is meant to kind of give the audience a, a bigger brain perspective of what's going on. Mm-hmm. To an extent, I think like Thomas Jane's delivery has a wryness to it here that makes me feel like he's trying to play it as Miller having some self-awareness in this situation. And I would like to go with that. We, we get so many solo scenes with Miller, but I just feel like there's so much more in his head that we could have dived into, which the books mm-hmm. obviously do because that's the value of a written form. Whereas the show, like, you have to infer a lot. And this is one of those moments where, like, you have to kind of infer what's being said. Because he's such an isolated character that, like, the book gives you the benefit of seeing what he's thinking. Yeah, and maybe the hypocrisy is the point. You know, maybe we're supposed Mm -hmm. to look at this with a slightly more sympathetic view, which is that, like, everybody's human. It's easy to criticize organized religion, but it's hard to criticize faith because... At the end of the day, I think Miller recognizes that he himself is like, and I think that's why he says, because I believe in her. I, I think mm-hmm. he, I, I almost would say him criticizing the Mormon is, again, a, as Miller's interactions usually are, more of a reflection of criticizing himself. Um, right. And like you said, the wryness kind of plays into like him understanding the ridiculousness of this situation of like on, going on this goose chase for Julie, but he's still doing it. In the same way that, that mm-hmm. mor- the Mormons are going to, you know, they don't know that there's something at the end of their trip, but they're still doing it because they have faith exactly. that there's something there. Exactly. But that's everything I have for the episode. Uh, I had like a moment. Uh, mm-hmm. the Oh, yeah, I have a couple small moments. Oh, okay, okay. So let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's move to the small moments. Um, I only had one. <laughs> I mean, I had multiple, but I already talked about them. There was, um, so in the Blue Falcon... I noticed that Alex and Naomi did not fight at all. They didn't shoot any guns. Mm-hmm. Or I think Alex tried to. Yeah, they just died behind a couch. Yeah, and yeah. again, it plays into like how they are. They don't fight, and I, I, it's interesting to see that dynamic start to be established. How Holden and Amos are really like the the guns and the heavies. Things. Yeah, and we saw that even when they met with Fred Johnson. Exactly. You know, in all these situations, it's really Holden and Amos who carry the gunfire, and um. Naomi and Alex who don't and I think it's it's cool to see that line between them and so as a result they don't fight in the Blue Falcon but what I really like is Alex's reaction after that because he is mm-hmm. totally freaked out because you can see right. he's like never been in that kind of combat before because when he was in the military he just did like delivery exactly right? yeah he was he was just like a a truck driver basically but in mm-hmm. space um and it was cool to, it, I liked that they gave us, they, they took the time to show Alex panicking, as he should, because the adrenaline is gone and suddenly he's realizing, like, what's just happened? Like, now there are a bunch of bodies in the, in the hotel. And him, like, kind of pointing his gun at that one resident and then just completely shaking. And then mm-hmm. Alex kind of, like, slowly pushing him down. Um, it's, it's just, it was, I liked seeing that sequence of events. I was really happy that they showed Alex reacting in that way because sometimes when it comes to shows like this, like, again, violence is sort of taken for granted and these kind of moments are not there. I liked Miller's smirk 
Elaine semi finds him in jail <laughs> and says, "You were stomping on a lead." He looks actually proud of himself to me. <laughs> it's not good, but it was a very his reaction was amusing. Um, West Chatham's delivery of "It's a special friend." It's his birthday. <laughs> With this deadpan expression on his face. Yeah. Like, he couldn't... I don't know. It's almost like the thought didn't occur to him to, like, try and make his face match what he was saying. You know? He's just like, listen, I know it's bullshit. You know it's bullshit. But let's cut to the chase. Also, when Miller's locked up, there are two belters sitting near him. And one is saying to the other, you're talking like this because you're fed up. That's how a fed up person would talk. You need to talk with this. And then he taps his head. And the person is reacting to him like, yeah, I know. I should have known better. (laughs) And Miller's just watching them clearly fed up because he's heard this entire conversation. I'm just so (laughs) curious. Like, what? Yeah, like, what are they? What the fuck are they talking about? And my last point is that the reveal on Julie at the end of the episode is such a good, like, horror scene. I close my eyes still when, like, I I just didn't watch it. I was like, I cannot watch it. It's rough. It is so fucked up. Julie! Oh, I guess we gotta talk about this. Julie! It is really, I was really disappointed i think i expected her to be dead the first time i watched or i thought okay something's definitely gone horribly wrong for her wherever she is i guess my hope is that my hope was that she could be rescued in some way and so yeah when you find out she's dead not only is she dead she had what was clearly a horrible death this is actually uh, ironically something i i struggle to figure out which side I land on this because it felt mm-hmm. gratuitous. Like the display of her body. Yeah, you know, like we don't really, this isn't really the kind of show where they're going to like show you somebody's full naked body, but that's what they did with Julie. Mm-hmm. And she's like a young, I mean, she's not a kid, but you know, in the context of the show, she's basically a kid and she looks like a zombie mm-hmm. and and they they make sure to show like all of it. And in the as we'll see in the next few episodes they kind of are still on her and Mm -hmm. it it felt so like i don't want to see this like i don't want to see her in this and like to be fair like i know what they're doing like the point is that it's so grotesque and it's just Mm -hmm. like such a different view of the julie that we have been thinking about for the past you know seven episodes but it's still like you know when it comes to gratuitous violence or gore in general it's like i don't know i can't decide how i feel about it yet it, it's it's, an, it's something that you kind of run into with body horror like at what point is it just you know too much or does it feel exploited and it felt exploitative 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 to me mm-hmm. it's hard to describe why i think it's because like one she was fully naked i was like mm-hmm. i don't like they didn't show anything but still, mm-hmm. you know, like, she's basically as vulnerable as you can be. Right. And, and they're doing they're doing it that way intentionally, but... Yeah, it's hard to, like... It's, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just... I, I think I just don't like it. And that's... I just covered my eyes when, like, I knew it was coming. I was like, I don't want to see it. First of all, it's right. fucking gross. 
but that I can, especially that I can, when like, it's like shit coming out of her mouth oh my god please don't remind me i can accept that i'm like it's fucking gross okay sure like but i i i think partially is because we have literally never met her like mm-hmm. besides the pilot in the the the, the pre the prologue part i guess mm-hmm. but we've never like met her one everything we know about julie is told through someone else's voice and so right. seeing her dead First of all, seeing her dead, I'm like, so we are, you know, the woman dies, right? Like, we are never going to hear her side, even though, like, in the next episode, we kind of do. Like, everything we take from her is based on someone else's story. Right. And so it just sucks because, and I don't, I'm I'm not, at this point, I'm not really saying it as a criticism. I'm just, like, saying my personal feelings on, like, Julie dying, basically. Like, it just sucks because you feel like you almost like wasted all this time and she can't even tell her side of the story. Mm-hmm. I'm just sad. It is very sad. That also happens to be the end of our small moments unless you have anything else to say. Then I do not have much to say for a book comparison so we can Scoot on over to the score tracking. Wow, this is a short episode. This is literally under. This is our gift to you guys after like three straight episodes. I think we're tired. I think we're like, let's just get to Eros. And like, we're here, but we mean like, let's get to Eros. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, which is, I mean, it's good. And again, like, trying to approach it from a writing perspective. Okay, this is where the fatigue comes in. You know, five, six, seven, and eight. Or six, seven, eight, I would say, is where the fatigue really hits. It's like if you're gonna have slow episodes in the beginning, then having slow episodes later is like now I just don't want to sit through it. Exactly. Um, so it's it brings up questions of pacing. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm also gonna be curious because one thing like when I watched this show for the first time, by the time I got to season two, I said, oh, like I'm just used to the pace by now, mm-hmm. but. I wonder, like, now that we're going to watch it, you know, when we finish this season, like, is it the pace that I'm used to or does the pace actually change? So the pacing, I feel like changes. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is because it's it's very much like an A and B structure. Yeah. So they're whatever story they're trying to tell you know, is compressed to, you know, six to seven episodes. But additionally, we're still finishing off book one. And the back half of book one has a little more action than... It is that shit. Yeah. (laughs) A little more action was an understatement. Yeah. Actually, I might take back that it was that shit. I think... They have more moments to breathe in the books. But, you know, when there's action... Things move fast, is what I'll Mm -hmm. say about that part. Things go bat shit in season three. That's what (laughs) it goes crazy. Um... Yeah, so I I guess my thoughts are like I would definitely look at the pacing of this season because like and and all that to say like I do like this episode. I think this episode was really really strong because mm-hmm. um it's you know, it's got all three like all three plots which not every episode does, which is which is good. Every plot moves things forward in some way. And then you've got, of course, Miller and Holden meeting up, and that actually takes up like that's not that's not the end of the episode. It's actually like it keeps going. So it's good. It just makes episodes like the previous one. It's uh, 
it makes episodes like that feel all the more slower because action episodes in this show are not like people are shooting from minute one to minute 45. Mm-hmm. It's almost like slow plus action. So then the slower episodes feel even slower because it's like, we know people are going to stand around and talk. Like that's what they do in every episode. But now people are going to stand around and talk for the entire time. You know, it's, but, um, but then I'm thinking about like, you know, in the previous episode, they had the whole stuff with the Martian military, which really scared me. Oh my God. Every time Alex like talked to one and then they like, you know, you're waiting for them to respond and they they're just so mean um the martian military is mean though yeah they, why they don't need to there's no reason for that because they can be yeah i guess i'm i think i, I keep going on this because i keep complaining until i realize like i don't have anything concrete to complain about <laughs> but i i feel like i do well that's our cue to move on to score tracking <laughs> yeah complain about okay. the score <laughs> in score tracking there are oh I didn't clap near the mic enough. There are two tracks in this episode. One is called Anubis, which is playing while they search the Anubis, um, and the second one is Lionel Polanski, which plays while they enter Julie's room because, as we know, she is Lionel Polanski. And do we need a what's happened so far? Um, like do we? I feel like now we know that you know Julie's Lionel Polanski. They were looking for the same person. We now know she's dead, but we're not sure exactly of what. But we know it's connected to the bioweapon that um, the crew just came in contact with that Miller mentioned an episode or two ago. That's it. I don't need to say any more. I had to step in since I was slacking on book. (laughs) We know it wasn't Mars. We know it wasn't the probably not the OPA. Um, and Earth is looking around confused too. So. But I, I just remember there's a one more reveal that hasn't come yet. Well, yep. Technically two more. So I'll keep we'll get there. We'll get there. So yeah, I, I guess that's all it is. Um, all we know is that like the nations are not a, on a government level. This is like not their fault. Somebody mm-hmm. is orchestrating this. Um, and we haven't even. Oh my God, we haven't even gotten to like. Oh my goodness! I just forgot about the finale. All right. So, which is actually my cue to tell y'all, yes. episode nine and ten, those are gonna be long. I like. There's. I don't know if we can get around it. I'm looking at my notes and I'm like. Yeah, nine and ten are gonna be fun because finally. I mean, I feel like I've been wait. Once we hit like episode five, I've just been like, when are we getting to arrows? Now we're here. Now we're here. And now we can find out what happened to the Grievous. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.